This is Coda Radio, episode 341, for January 22nd, 2019. Welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic, or so we like to think, look at the art and business of software development. Chris is away again this week, but don't worry, I'm back, and I'm, of course, lucky to be joined with the incredible, the mad botter himself, Mr. Michael Dominic. Welcome, Mike. Hello, Mr. Pan. You know, if we keep this up, people will start talking. Yeah. Oh, okay. they we might check into the hotel. Be... Fake names, yeah. Oh, you're not you're not doing that. That's just for safety's sake, Mike. Oh, that's a. Well, hey, did you see the NSA charger at ShmooCon? Uh, yes. Uh, what is happening? I wonder how many people actually used that. It, it, actually, the biggest troll would be if it really wasn't like a rootkit. If it was just like actually a charger. Yeah, they're like, we, man, we all we all got phones. People got a charge. We're trying to help a brother out. It's like, guys, we're recruiting. Why would we screw with you? Like, <laughs> yeah, we want we want the smart people. Which, you know, is All true, right. as long as you can pass those government drug tests. Automatic disqualification if you plug in your phone. <laughs> right, yeah, no, uh, please please don't talk to us ever again. Get out of here. Yeah. And we know everything already, because, you know, you just plugged in your whole life. <laughs> oh, uh, yes. Uh, and I guess right. really, speaking about plugging in your whole life, last time I was here and chatting with you, Mr. Mike, we talked a bit about the painfulness of USB-C, and that's kind of been a, a, a common topic on the show. Sounds like you got some feedback about it. Yeah, so the USB-C I'm talking about in particular is the 2018 iPad Pro. Um, obviously, it has a USB-C port, and it is theoretically possible that you could um, basically treat it like any other port, right? It, and I, I actually did my job this time, Wes. I tried to get confirmation from Apple's developer line, and believe it or not, I actually got someone on the phone. Wait, no, you talked to a human freaking being a over human? there? Well, I, I, I can't prove they weren't a Cylon. Well, no, sure. I mean, I don't, I don't expect you to be able to, but they approximated it. They passed your test. Yes, and the, the answer was, of course, not helpful. See what I did there? Very sad. Whoa, what are you doing to me, man? What are you doing? Yeah, I was so excited. Base, well, it's interesting, though. You certainly can use the USB port, and these are the, the so far things that we've thought of. You know, and people, if you've never done an iOS development, it is theoretically possible to email or call Apple. But they will never like pre-approve something. Like so, the case I gave them is: I want to use an iPad, plug it into a Raspberry Pi, and flash the Raspberry Pi from the iPad. I want to make like a little graphical app to do that, right? Oh, that would be that's a great idea. Yeah. So anybody wants to steal that, you'll get it done faster than me. I and I told the ref that, and it was kind of eh, maybe try. Sounds cool, but you know, can't promise anything. So they're not saying so, they're not saying outright no, absolutely not. Well, they they're never saying. Do. Right. Well, you're just going to have to see. Wow, that's useless. Yeah, it was, and I've called them a few times over the course of the show, and it's kind of like, I think they only actually said no once because it was, um, it was, oh, it was something, long-time listeners will know, there was something I wanted to do with the in-app subscription thing that that wasn't at the time allowed, but ironically now is allowed. <laughs> so, it, oh, it was, I wanted to do in-app purchases and make them be a subscription before there were subscriptions. So like basically every month, just like trigger something to ask you to do an in-app purchase. Oh, uh, I that see. Was so that was just going to be like, hey, uh, yeah, please support us yeah, again. That you, you can't do that. Uh, now you can, because obviously they have subscriptions. But so I don't know. I mean, I got a lot of uh, feedback. Half of the people saying, well, there was really thirds. One third saying, put down the Mac before you break it, which... I mean, fair criticism. That is a great point. And please be careful. We just, I, I fear for anything, any device that enters into your home. Well, I'm, I'm now using my old Dell Optiplex because it's a desktop. Oh, yeah, right. And it's almost, my it's theolo- almost impossible. My Thalios. Oh, don't, don't, don't say that. Don't say that. Please don't say that. Um, my Thalio is on its way, but I am putting the Thalio in carbonite like Han Solo. Just nice shielding. That way you can't fine. appreciate its beautiful design. 
Yeah, I know, but I, I would destroy it. Yeah, it's better for um, the beautiful wood veneer that you just uh, keep it as far away as possible. Maybe if you could yeah. put it sort of behind the wall just with the cables coming out, that might be the best. Well, actually, my desk, and this is way inside baseball, is one of those two-level desks. It's like an old antique style. Ooh. So I'm just going to put it on the higher level. So if I do spill something, I only destroy my mouse and keyboard. Good idea. Yeah. But yeah, so the USB-C thing is kind of... We don't really have an answer here. It is... There are certain documented things in the docs we I shared uh, about three weeks ago, maybe? Maybe three weeks ago? That you certainly can do, right? Integrate with the Photos app on the uh, on the device. And there's, you know, there's a bunch of stuff. Music, movies, whatever. As well as the onboard file system, but not the real file system, the, the little files app. So I can't say yes or no. I mean, people writing and asking, give it a shot. But don't like invest your life savings because you could get rejected, right? Like I'm, I'm my suspicion, Wes, is that in the next like major bump of iOS, so like 13, there is going to be expanded functionality as the other devices get USB-C. Because the other challenge you would have if you did something like what I'm describing, which I just thought of and probably the reason the guy didn't give me a straight answer, <laughs> your app can't just run on one version of the iPad. So you would have to have another mechanism for this to work on non-USB-C iPads. And to integrate with the Lightning port, you have to actually like pay a licensing fee. Right, yeah, there's a whole kit and caboodle that goes around that. Wow. Right. So oh, you know, that never mind sense. this. It's just a bad idea. Uh, yeah, well, or the time will come. And of course, in typical Apple fashion, you don't get like access to everything out the gate. You got to piecemeal it, slowly add as there's enough demand and they like add it the way they want to have it seen, it seen it done and conforms to yeah. their standards. And really, I guess they just get away with it, right? Because they are—they're the place to be. They've got the—they've got the market. They've got the users. So you got to play ball. Well, and they have the best tablet on the market right now, yeah, and they have until, the, until the Carl, only tablet you know, worth buying. Till System Seventy Six uh, launches a tablet. Fake rumors started here. That is, oh, I know nothing stop about doing this to me. You're just this whole episode so far has been you making up teasing things that I assume won't happen in any reasonable time frame. All right. Speaking of teasing, you know, I'm getting tired, Wes. I, I can't do all these uh, deployments and builds manually. Do you have a way I could automate that? Well, you know, actually, there's been a lot of talk around some of the community about some tools to do just that. And one of them is Jenkins. And it kind of brought up a topic for me in general, too, that I was, I'm was i sort of curious about what happens in your world. You were just talking about there's a lot of things to do. There's deployments. Uh, there's testing to be run. There's all sorts of integrations to do and other sorts of configuration and just you know, there's there's cron jobs, there's services to be run. Jenkins can do all of that, right? That's one thing that's pretty nice about it, but it doesn't have to do all of that. I'm I'm wondering, like, what what do you use as for your for your own work? Are you someone who runs their own CI system and their own deployment stuff? Do you just rely on the tools provided by whatever integrating and partners you have? I don't do a lot of CI. I, I tend to. Uh, I used to use Jenkins when yeah, I used to do. You don't have to be. Uh, you don't have to say it. Uh, you know. You don't have to be bashful about it. You can come yeah, out. I'm and you're, be, be you, Mike. I, I, I'm gonna come out of the closet. I am not huge into the automation. The thing I do do is a uh, do do Docker and Doku with like some very light web hooks into GitLab. GitLab. Beyond that, I, you know, I just it's one of the things I just don't do too much. I'm pretty manual. Like if something needs to. Be deployed. I also don't do a lot of automated testing. Is why I don't do a lot of CI. Oh yeah, right. Um, yeah, you don't I'm have a test bad guy. See, I, I heard it. I probably felt not the judgment. A, yeah, <laughs> but you've lived another life where you have used uh, this gremlin of ours, Mister Jenkins, right? Yeah, I was once required to. Um, it it actually, but I, I hear it's a whole different world now. I mean, we're we're going back probably four and a half years. The last time I used it. Yeah, you know, I was looking back at uh, 2011. That's uh, that's when the name change happened. That's when there was all this drama about Oracle's fork and Hudson became Jenkins. It feels like a long time ago. I mean, it, it's not really, I suppose, eight years now. And it's surprising both what's changed and uh, really, really what's stayed the same. I think you'd be surprised. So yes, there are, there's some new things. There's, there's like Jenkins X. They've also got this uh, blue ocean interface. Those are relevant. We should probably talk about them. But overall, I think I think if you logged into like a newly stood up Jenkins server, sure, it might be running on Kubernetes today, but I think it would look probably identical. So what's the big change then? I mean, it's been about four years. What's uh, what would be new to me coming to it? 
well, okay, probably what would be new to you, uh, you know, there would be small things, there'd be lots of different different plugins, different plugin updates, things like that. And I think one of the things that's caused a lot of pain for people is not that it's useful, it's that things keep changing and it doesn't feel finished. So one of the things people really like about CI systems is building pipelines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, also it's called Jenkins now, so so there you go. Uh, but but people like to build pipelines so that you can, you know, you have, have things usually driven by automation, but it doesn't have to necessarily be, it could be a human kicking it off. You start something, it pulls some code from Git, does some build steps, maybe does tests, maybe does a test deployment and, and spins up some test infrastructure to go run further tests or to leave it there for downstream applications to test against. You have all these options and you don't want to have to do it. Sure, you can write a bash script. That's that's one way to do it. But that's pretty painful. And so there's been these promise of various different pipeline syntax. Uh, one version of it, it, it's basically just sort of groovy, like a groovy DSL with some handy functions already implemented for you. So you can sort of define how stuff runs and on which agents or is it, you know, is it is it thread safe or not? All those little nitty gritty details that you don't want to think about, but sometimes you have to if you have complicated stateful testing to do. But even that hasn't really stayed the same. It keeps kind of changing and they'll have You'll have one sort of really declarative style of syntax, or you'll have another one that is is more imperative and kind of you have to walk through exactly every single step that you want to do. And it, it's kind of become, at least at least in the, the organizations I've seen, it's something of a, a black art where you've got maybe a couple experienced DevOps people. You've got the, or the senior developer who's written enough Jenkins files over the years that they just can do it on, you know, sit down and, and bang one out because the documentation is missing in a lot of cases. Or it's just outdated. So you don't really know, is this the right syntax? And uh, once you've got this, you know, you, you've probably got it defined in in Git somewhere, which is nice, right? So the basic promise of having a Jenkins file that sits there and you can keep all of your sort of CI and testing stuff right there in your same code repository, that is really nice to have. But it also, like, okay. you get in this kind of painful process of, oh, no, that wasn't quite the syntax it wanted. All right, go over here, make a change to the Jenkins file, push it up, wait for Jenkins to go get the, the push or do a pull against the repo to see the change, pull it down again. Does it run this time? And when you can't be sure which exact version it's going to be or which the, what the syntax is or what's the best way to do this because there's a blog from four years ago that does it this way, but then a blog last year does it this way, but that gave me an error. I'm sure you've been in situations like that. Yeah, this reminds me of uh, any kind of automated automated deployment I've ever tried to do. <laughs> so, so is it now? My understanding is, and this is again going back. It was a very graphical tool, right? Yeah. Like there was a backend you could log into. So that's the other part. Um, that's the other thing about Jenkins that can sometimes be pretty pretty painful is. It's all about automation, right? Or, or at least helping to automate things. That's what it ends up being used for. But the process of setting it up is frequently not. Um, there are some pretty, pretty decent tools these days. There's some, you know, Ansible configurations. Um, the Chef recipe for setting it up, I think, has actually come a long way from when I first used it, and is yeah. is actually decent. And in particular, I think the Helm chart to run it on Kubernetes is nice. And if you do run it on Kubernetes, you get nice integrations too, because you can obviously use Kubernetes as a, a place to go trigger, run clean tests and stuff. So that's that's nice. But so what, to get it actually to deploy automatically and have all of your state that you want to keep or the configuration you need, that is hard. Enter a whole world of, of Java application, uh, getting familiar with the JVM if you're not already, and all the XML that goes along with it. Yes, if you don't like XML, you're not going to like Java. Jenkins is Java. Yeah. But it so, was Java before, you know, like you can, I mean, you can write like a really clean Java application with a nice restful API and, and very modern. Oh, no, you now. definitely can. Yeah. This was, this, was, this has been lo around long enough that uh, those ideas hadn't quite become popular. I think it's actually older than gray. I'm not sure if that's correct, but somebody can check it in the chat room. I'm pretty sure Jenkins or its precursor, its old name is actually older than the original version of Gradle. Oh, which wow. is scary to me. <laughs> yes, that is actually. Um... So what is the advantage of going all in on Jenkins compared to say what my current workflow is, which is Docker, right? On a Ubuntu server with running Doku as well. And then in that container, I have, you know, all my, let's just use Java. Or let's use Rails as an example. Sure. This is literally what I have in production. Excellent. Uh, Ruby on Rails, I have a Postgres container. In some cases, we have like a Redis thing running, but let's ignore that because that complicates things. You do your coding, you push to your, your topic branch. We branch by person at the Madbotter, 
and then you merge it into either a dev staging or master branch. Each of those has a, a uh, obviously a Docker target, right, where they're where they're going to deploy to. So there's three three DigitalOcean droplets, three servers per project. Why? And obviously, the automation with GitLab is once a pull request is merged into one of those relevant branches, we're using the um, GitLab pipelines. I believe is what GitLab calls them, or that might be what Bitbucket used to call them. But the you know what I just realized? I am doing automated testing. I just forgot. Look at you. I'm just not the one who writes them. Because oh, that's see, what that's the pipelines nice. are actually you testing. You get to be the boss. Right. So when, when, if that passes, because GitLab will actually throw a flag and not allow the merge. But assuming it passes, assuming the merge goes through, it will push through a webhook automatically to the relevant uh, DO droplet and do the uh, Doku deployment. Which if you don't know Doku uh, for the audience, Doku is basically a tool for docker to make it work uh, like heroku if you're familiar with heroku where you could like just get, get pushed to deploy a docker powered platform as a service that helps you build and manage the life cycle of applications is their little banner yeah and we can throw that in the notes too so where is how is that different from what you can do with jenkins or is it just a different tool for a different you know just for the same problem it's a more modern tool. Um, I, I think the thing about Jenkins is um, you know, there's been a lot of development in how in how development happens in the in the time that Jenkins has been around. And one of the first things, right, was kind of the rise of of TDD of having rigorous testing of people being like, well, if we're going to ship this, it, it should have some tests, and you know, especially especially unit tests, but but uh, just all all sorts of testing. I think it started with unit tests in this case, but. You needed somewhere to run them. Sure, you could run them on your local machine, but then you get into the thing of, all right, you got to teach everyone and they got to have enough, especially in the age before like popularization of, of containers for development workflows. You got to be able to set up everything on your local box. Maybe that's difficult, especially if people don't have ops experience. And then they got to go wait for the, the test runner to happen on their machine before maybe they're allowed to go push it to the master branch or whatever the, you know, whatever the, the CVS workflow is. That's pretty painful. So so Jenkins exists as as a place to go allow that to happen. So if you've got, you know, you've got your near future branch or your personal branch you want to go run tests on, you can push a change, it'll detect it, start triggering your tests, run all that, and you can go do something else as a developer. And and that was at a time where there were other there, you know, there's been other projects to do that. But I think the rise both in enterprise Java development and Jenkins being filling that need and being uh, something friendly for people who are already doing and deploying Java applications. You know, you already have the JVM production. You can copy that image and use it for test too. So, so a lot of places just kind of got there, right? So they had, they had Jenkins to do all their testing. Maybe they still had, you know, you built a final jar and handed it over the wall to the ops team and then they would actually go push it to production. Over the years, we've sort of, you know, we've pursued quote-unquote DevOps. We've sort of merged these things. We've wanted more automation in that department. We're doing continuous deployment, possibly. As that advanced, Jenkins just kept growing features. And and that's the thing. I think that's the thing that still stands out about it. I was looking at an article from an organization talking about, like, in 2018, why on earth would we choose Jenkins? And, you know, honestly, their, their arguments weren't necessarily persuasive to me, but it did lay out that, like, Jenkins has pretty much all the features that you want. So if you have people who are familiar, if you're already using it for something, there's a low barrier to entry to keep using it. I think what it doesn't answer is the question, if you don't have to, would you choose Jenkins today? Personally, I don't, I'm not sure that I would. Now, it is sort of the ultimate flexible tool. I mean, at least one step removed from from just, you know, peer scripts or arbitrary applications and binaries. But it can be made to do just about whatever you want, especially with the wide array of plugins that exist. The flip side of that, well, now you're maintaining stateful plugins that have updates and changes to their stuff. So that's just a whole nother layer of, you know, dependency and version management to control. And you're, you're you know, managing and running and running Jenkins. So you have this world where the enterprise has a lot of Jenkins servers out there. You have developers who are like, don't really want to change. They're just there to write new features that get shipped because sales told everyone that that's what needed to happen. They don't want to go learn a new CI system. And the flip side, too, is I think Jenkins makes it pretty easy to get really hacky if you need to, if I if I can use that language. Because, you know, you do have a lot of ways out. You have It's really easy to go do things maybe you shouldn't or aren't quite declarative, especially compared to some of the more modern CI systems that... I think are started in the right way, but have, you know, maybe like a, just a, a YAML syntax. You basically, you can describe operations right, that right. they've defined as primitives, and that's all you get. 
So I'm, I'm looking at the Jenkins site and there's two new things that I find pretty interesting. One, I'm looking at Evergreen, which I'll throw in the show notes, which is an automatically rolling distribution for Jenkins. So is it no longer the practice to do like a big forklift upgrade when you have to upgrade Jenkins? Or is this something, is this where it's going, I guess? Is it going towards being an Evergreen solution? Well, so I will I will say this. Um, I think there was a long time where Jenkins didn't get a ton of love. Now that that's not that's not no love. That's not no love. But in the past couple of years, probably starting in I don't know maybe two thousand six, uh, as as more and more things moved to the cloud, as as CI CD practices became more of the standard, they've sort of they've sort of caught on to that. So you did see you've seen some approaches to maybe work on a new UI. It's not there yet. Uh, you've seen some more stuff like Jenkins X, which is kind of meant to be a cloud-first, containerized, orchestrated, world-first tool. And you see stuff like Evergreen, where they're like, well, people probably want to have more ways to update this and and at least have more up-to-date things, things that keep getting, you know, that update in clean, automatic ways. They, I don't know if I would want to do it continuously or all the time, but it, it would probably be nice to have smaller updates more frequently as compared to the one big horrible every two year upgrade where no one really knows what's happening and testing's broken for a week. Yeah, I've used iOS long enough. I don't like updating. It scarred me for all other systems. So this is, this that was a joke. This is all pretty, pretty interesting. How well has, see when I used it, it was pure Java Spring, right? So it was like the most vanilla use case you could possibly think of other than Java EE. Has Jenkins managed to penetrate into other like types of developers what do you mean by types of developers so for instance right if you are a ruby hipster you probably are using actually probably using like capistrano right because that's a very ruby that is sure yeah yeah Mm -hmm. just because i'm using docker i'm sure there are a lot of ruby guys using docker too because i also write other languages and docker basically works with everything is Jenkins more like a Docker where it's kind of platform agnostic? And I say platform, I mean dev environment, not, you know, not like... Right, Linux right, right. Not, not OS, but yeah, like yeah, tool chains and yeah. Right. Or is it more like a Capistrano where, you know, this is the, this is a Java solution. I guess it, I guess it is a Java solution because you, you still have to... So let me take a step back. My experience with Jenkins is you have to like spin up a JVM, set up a server and actually do all of the I'm running a Java web application on my server work. Have they managed to containerize that where I can just do like Docker pull? Yes, you can. And honestly, that's That's probably the way I would recommend running it. I mean, where it it gets painful always is um, some of the more deep configurations. But in like the Helm chart or the Docker image, they've got a lot of that sort of pulled out and extracted. And honestly, you probably end up end of the day. I would suggest maybe a workflow where like if you make changes in the UI, you've got a system in place to export all of the changed file systems on disk and then commit that immediately back to version control as the source of truth so that all, you know, all future deployments happen. A good tip. Um, Because otherwise it just gets to be a mess. And having stuff like Docker can help you do that because it makes you a little bit more aware of where you have state, right? It's not a VM with a real file system. It's a container with some attached storage that either lives somewhere that's easily backed up or is ephemeral. And um, so, yeah, I I would definitely say that's easy. So you don't have to. There's also stuff like I was saying, like Ansible or Chef Scripts to get it stood up if you are using more traditional infrastructure. And if you don't have to do anything complicated, like trying to get SSL installed in the Java key store itself, which is just always the world's most painful process, probably just use a uh, Nginx proxy or something. You'll probably be fine uh, and it works well enough. But as you were talking about earlier, you will have to keep going back to that UI, especially if you're a new user. And that's where it's still kind of unpleasant. So, and this is a unsolicited plug, but if you did want to learn Jenkins and you wanted to like take a Jenkins certification course, I think there's an academy that can help you. Yeah. yeah. Linux Academy. Linux Academy. Certified Jenkins Engineer 2018 by Michael McLaren. Boom. There you go. That's a great place. And so that's, that's another reason that you might want to use Jenkins. There are a lot of resources. And if you can't get it installed. There's a ton of demand too. Yeah, right. right. So it exists wanna, everywhere. Yeah. People are using it. If you're hired onto a new company, you don't get to choose what CI system is in place. It's probably already Jenkins. Wait, Wes, you can't walk in as a junior developer to this big organization and say, you know what, guys? I know you've been using Jenkins for 10 years. Hey, I mean, don't, but... don't think I haven't tried. It just, it just doesn't <laughs> always work. 
well, I'm converting people from .NET to Ruby or .NET Core, but usually to Ruby all the time. <laughs> so the other thing I and think is um, you've got this, It's there's so many low-hanging fruit. You know, like once you're already invested somewhere, it just keeps happening. So because Jenkins makes it really easy to tie in to things like Git repositories or GitLab or GitHub or push, you know, you can have push, you can have pull, whatever you want. It also has support for stuff like cron-like jobs where you can have a job on a schedule. If you're a developer and maybe you're not great at like systems, you don't want to go spin up a box that you have to manage and do updates on to, you know, try to do a cron job that pings your service for updates to make sure the database or the cache is fresh or whatever weird hacky thing you're trying to do. You probably already have access to Jenkins and it can do the same thing. So even if you just need a place that isn't your local developer workstation to trigger the Capistrano deployment, that's a lot of the times where Jenkins, someone writes a little deploy script and loads it up in Jenkins, and then you know every time there's a push to the master branch, Jenkins will detect it, run that job, spin up the spin up the job, use Capistrano to deploy it to the production machine. There were so many cool buzzwords that anyone not in tech would not understand in that entire spiel. Yes, it's horrible. so. It's just no, it's great actually. So let, let's let's dial that. Let's dial in on that a little bit. So I push the master right, and I'm I'm going to walk through this like I'm five because you know it. I was playing with blocks this morning. Um, I have a little kid. Hey, no excuse needed. Blocks are great for any age. Blocks are funny. You know what? They actually make blocks to teach your kids coding now. And it's like if statements and they all fit together the right way. It's crazy. fun. That actually, that's fun. Wow. So I push to master. That triggers Jenkins, right? Jenkins then has a job to run the whatever the Capistrano or Chef tasks are. Is that is that what's going on? Yeah, and you know, there's plugins for various things. Like there's you know a, a plugin to run Ansible scripts. So if you're using Ansible for stuff, right, you can have that go like, oh yeah, here you go. Here's the job that you trigger. Here's where you pull. Right. And and yeah, exactly. So you can basically trigger. You can do arbitrary jobs. It can be a, an actual script running on the Jenkins machine, an API request somewhere, or uh, running something a little more complicated. Okay, so theoretically, if you are an experienced uh, engineer who has used Jenkins for some time, you can actually take your Jenkins knowledge and directly apply it to some of these other kinds of, let's say, CI deployment technologies. If you wanted to, and you, if you wanted to for, have Jenkins be the thing that manages everything. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's where it is sort of a mongrel um, job runner system um you know you can use it, it sort of spits like run deck is a better example of something that does that should do jobs like that but again jenkins has enough functionality that like unless you want to spin up and learn to run a new system and have someone who's willing to support it or you're willing to support it or your team's willing to support it well your organization already has a jenkins server sitting there sure it might be on some developer's workstation hiding under a desk right. we hope not uh but either way it's already there and it's online and it tends to be one of those things like, you know, when jobs fail or the test server's down, developers notice right away. Hey, Wes, why is the server closet on fire? Oh, that wasn't me. Uh, I've been at lunch. Did somebody install Windows Server on one of my servers? Is that why there's smoke coming out of the closet? I just I just always walk around with a little uh, USB drive set up to wipe whatever it finds and install Windows Server on it. Uh, I'm actually been inspired by the NSA. I'm going to put free charging stations and parking lots all around Tampa. And, you know, let's see what happens when people plug in their phones. That was not an actual promise to commit a crime, dear feds. Actually, what about Windows, though? What about a Windows server? Can my Jenkins run on Windows or are we purely in the Linux side of life? I think you see it deployed mostly on Linux just because, you know, Linux VMs are cheap for, for and, and ubiquitous. Uh, but no, I mean, it's Java. Uh, it'll run anywhere Java runs, which is nice. And they do have, you know, they do have Windows plugins and stuff like that. That It's not the most vibrant part of the ecosystem, I would say, but it's not like it's missing. There's PowerShell integrations. Um, and then especially now that there's, you know, more .NET Core, PowerShell Core, I think that would all work great. Yeah, yeah that's actually true. In .NET Core, you would run on Linux anyway. It would be very strange to have .NET Core and the JVM on the same machine, but also kind of exciting. Yeah, it would be kind of exciting. I love it. Now, I don't know about um, that. That would still work for some of the the DevOpsy stuff. I don't know. I I don't see them getting used nearly as much for like you know um, Visual Studio centric development. That probably depends on the shop and what tools they're familiar with. But you can, you could, in theory, get it running. I just don't see it done. Yeah, it's it's. Sounds like it's incredibly unlikely that someone would want to really do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but okay. but so for example, I think I think really it's 
what we are entering into is a world of we already have so much so many things offered as a service so if you're doing everything and you know you pay for like a private github repository i guess you don't even have to anymore um you know you, you're using some sort of I private know, thing I'm for so your <laughs> but i thought you were using gitlab mike so this is a little behind the curtain. Yeah. Thing. I use both. So we host our own GitLab, uh, the community edition on Do. That is where 90% of our repos are. But if we have to contract with an outs, like if we're partnering with another firm on a project um, and they want us to host, we don't let them into our like private Do droplets. We have use GitHub for that. So for co-developing with another shop. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Then that's sort of and, that's sort and of that, their thing, right? There, everyone's on it. Well, especially if it's Windows, like if it's a Windows project, you would be shocked at how many developers I have talked to and met that when I say, "Yeah, we use GitLab," they're like, "Oh, but we we use Git." And when they say Git, they literally mean GitHub. Like the Git GitHub. Oh, see, I'm getting it confused. The GitHub GUI application for Windows. Is what they perceive Git. Oh wow! It is. That, yeah, so wow. it's just like yeah. That I mean, no, that is like that is a thing though. Um, Git is not a tool. I, I've helped. Oh man, I have helped some like technical writers and other people in that that sort of field get set up because they had to interact with a Git repository and version control because they were editing the documentation that went along with deployments for the customer. Right. Wow, getting them set up to use it on Windows and actually use Git and like not break anything or they never they never hurt the repository but like they hurt themselves in the process so i can see how if you're just someone who has to collaborate on github the easy gui is going to be what you know yeah any sentence to like a let's say you know very traditional dotnet developer that starts with okay now launch git bash as soon as they hear bash you're you're in trouble yeah right yeah exactly i'm gonna i'm gonna need you to uh write this complicated script for me Mr. Dominic, are you back there? I'm back. I don't know what happened there. I, I said, I said, I said, get in Windows in the same set, and the whole thing just went. Oh, because I'm on Windows today. That's why it's oh, insulted. Redmond hurt you, my friend. Watch out. Well, they also own GitHub, so I mean, what do they care? What? And apparently, they don't care what OS you're on, right? So no, not not in the new world. So thinking about it, I don't think you would ever. I, I I'm hopeful. And let me let me just say, I'm going to hope for you, and here's my 2019 wish, is that, uh, and, and beyond, is that you don't have to run Jenkins. Not that it's bad, but that since, like, if you live in a world where you can, you know, you have a declarative build in CI and deployment system with, like, well-defined primitives and rules and a declarative syntax that you can use that, that pretty much does everything that you need, and you can architect your applications, or at least the building and sort of maintaining of your applications around that process. Just do that. Just just do that because you can. It'll just be easier, especially if you're already switching to something like GitLab. And I think that is actually one of the things that has been a huge boon to GitLab is GitLab having that is built great. in because you didn't. You don't yeah. have to set up a separate tool, and your ops team's already running GitLab, or you're just paying for it, and then it just works. Oh, can I can I do some GitLab love? Oh, love please. I last month found a new feature that I did not know existed. So my process traditionally, because I, I'm everything on Bash, I'm everything on my terminal, because I'm usually working on other pop oh, yeah, of course. So I'm like, you know, make deer, Rails, and I have like a Rails template to generate a project, right? And I, you know, once for bots. and But let's just, again, Rails is the simplest case, because it's the one I have most uh, And everyone most knows setup. it. Everyone knows Rails. You, lots of people like to code rails in parks on gold macbooks while meditating in wooden sandals we don't talk about them their name's dave um this is how i see if my employees actually listen to the show you can go into the gitlab ui if you go into the web ui they have prefabbed templates for rails and, and i think like php and java that actually set you set up the ci for you correctly you don't have to do it so it creates the repo does all the settings for your application and then instead of like generating it on your local host you just you know get clone it down and from the jump no fiddling with pipelines you are set up and good to go i cannot tell you how much of a killer feature that is yes right and it, and it sort of sets that modern expectation of here it is it's ready like you know you have these features that are built right in you're you're working on code you're building an application well of course you need those things it's not just a dumb right. place to go dump your Git repository. Not that that's a, that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's plenty of simpler 
you know, non-GitLab or GitHub Git repositories that have nice web UIs and are totally useful. But having it right there at hand is very seductive. How long, is, you, is, how long have you been using GitLab? Um, oh, over since before we had a, the GitLab CEO on, we must have been. I honestly don't know. Um, but for almost at least over a year. Yeah, the vast majority of our projects are in GitLab, not GitHub. I think we have like six repos in GitHub, and God knows how many in GitLab. Like, I'll put it to you this way: I had to upgrade the DO server. There you go. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and has it been? Uh, I'm I'm curious for 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 you. How has it been to run it and manage it? So if you're running it, you're running on an, on a droplet. It sounds like. Um, has that been a pain? Uh, Is running, that something that your team has to spend significant time worrying about or touching on no. or getting alerts from? I mean, maybe once so far, I think we've had one incident where it just like ran out of storage because all the tickets had like videos and images on them. So we had to, you know, turn off the droplet and DO. For those who don't use DO, you can actually turn off the, uh, when I said droplets, just a VPS, right? Turn it off and then change the settings to get more storage. Also keep in mind, like Jenkins is a Java app, GitLab is a Rails app. So for us, administrating, deploying, upgrading a Rails app is like we do it all the time. And I personally am the one who does that. So it's, uh, I think from zero, like starting the droplet to, you know, changing the DNS for the domain for it took maybe an hour to get up and running and good to go with everything set up. Wow. Yeah. Oh, you know, that that's a good point too. Uh, there is that, that power. Once you're familiar with the, the horrors of bundle and everything else that goes around with a complicated rails project, then you're like, okay, I guess I'm, uh, I'm ready to manage this thing. So I, I think we could both agree Wes. if, uh, some of our listeners want to try GitLab on their own droplet and they are not familiar with rails. The answer is always more Ram than you think you need. Oh my God. What is yeah, it? Yeah, Ruby's I, just what like, is it? <laughs> And it's, you know, I mean, there's lots of things fast. not in its not in its favor. The like, you know, object oriented dynamic sort of thing, and it's its most common VM implementation. But there's also just something about complicated Rails apps, and you have a bunch of workers running in the background, yeah. and nothing ever really dies when it should. Wait till you have to like start implementing what should just be simple cron jobs in Rails, and you just watch if there's any sort of issue, just watch the memory like that chart just up and to the right. I am um, uh, in, in a past life. I inherited a, an internal service uh, that I sort of became responsible for when the previous person left, and it was fine. It was pretty minimal, but of course, it, it was written in Rails and not especially great Rails. Thankfully, we were doing a data center migration, so instead of having to fix the problem because it was going to be sunset at some time, I sort of just had to wait it out. Uh, yeah. I just stole one of the old servers that had like 128 gigs of RAM in it, and uh, it ran fine oh, a, for a, uh, as long a, as I needed it. It's a small Rails app, 128 gigs of RAM, that's nothing. I know, right? It was actually kind of reasonably well done, uh, if only because it was a small application. Well, the trade-off you know, that everybody makes with Rails is like, we would like to not spend a fortune on developers, and we want to keep moving on this app really quickly. Although we're being a little mean, Rails 5 is certainly a lot faster than, let's say, Rails 3. Yeah. Right? Right. It's a yes. lot more performant. Yeah, and you can, I mean, like, yeah, you can really use a Rails app, you know, Rails to build a modern um, API-driven sort of service, and, and it'll it'll be just fine. And if you wanted to do that, there's some people in Florida who could help you. Oh, oh. Now, what yeah, might their I, name be? The Mad Botter. The Mad Botter. You know, it also kind of looked like uh, even people who aren't interested in Rails or don't care about the back-end technology at all well, they've been talking about you, too. I happen to notice, Mr. Dominic, that you got some local coverage recently. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Florida Business Observer uh, came to my office in Plant City a couple, maybe a month ago. Uh, did a little interview talking about, you know, how we're using Linux and open source uh, for the aerospace and military aviation industries. So that was uh, interesting. First thing I had to do was... Uh, quote, put crazy tech stuff on the whiteboard. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, I had a, the photographer gave me a good laugh. But if you have, yeah, there's a link in the show notes. If you want to check it out, um, I look like a deranged professor who has 
crazy tech stuff. And of course, one of them is Linux and Ubuntu. You've got these joysticks in your hand. So it sort of makes me think you're in some sort of like floating or flying classroom. You've got a whiteboard behind you, joysticks in your hand. So you're just ready to uh, teach us all something, whether we like it or not. Yeah. So those are actually uh, replicas of what the Air Force uses in... um, so they're for training, right? For the replicas of what you have in like most modern cockpits, depending on the service and the type of plane. Um, this nice little Dell I have here was previously running a flight simulator that I was using those on for testing uh, our radar product, Griffin. Oh, interesting. One thing that I kind of wanted to know, uh, looking through this article, do, do you get much pushback about the technologies that you choose? I mean, if you are, you know, you are using a lot of open source tools these days, does that concern some of your more, uh, let's say, uh, defensive clients? Uh, you know, not really. One of the more interesting things is kind of the largest opportunity for what we're doing is people who have very old ASP applications that need to be either redone or rewritten um, for very good reasons, right? Like an ASP app after, you know, 10 years or whatever is going to be rough. Um, especially with all the changes Microsoft has made in the subsequent time. I would say the one area where we do get a lot of pushback is anything like in, in cockpit. Um, there, there's definitely a, uh, windows bias there. Um, and obviously most of the end users are running windows as their, uh, you know, their end PC, right? Yeah. Well, and I imagine fact, too, I gotta be honest, the surface pro is hyper popular just, yeah. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's like we have we usually what it is is we'll write some like back end service on Linux and Rails, but the front end will be like a WPF app for the Surface Pro. Oh, or something. Yep. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. And I suppose you know in in the field you got to use the technology you're comfortable with and that you've already trained all your people on. Yeah, and I think there's just a you know some of these companies have like security concerns, so there's like weird things they put on their Windows machines that lock them up. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, We've I already certified like this a, platform. We have. We know we can. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Windows Seven is alive and well. I'll put it that way. Oh, that's so sad and so painful. I mean, not that I hate Windows Seven or anything. It was a fine Windows, but it's uh, it's pretty old now. I just you know poor WinRT never made it. You know. Okay. So another thing uh, I just wanted to highlight in this article is a military grade rear warning radar system that runs on an iPhone. Those are, those are words I would never have put in the same sentence. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun project. We actually have grown it up into something called Griffin radar, um, which you can go to griffinradar.com that does the rear warning radar and um, a tactical display um, and a forward, forward radar, you just call radar, but and that, believe it or not, runs on Linux as well. So, wow, I'm I'm impressed. I mean, that sounds like a lot of uh, fancy and interesting math and uh, you know complicated heuristic algorithms to get that sort of thing right. Yes, and I did not personally do the math. I did some of it, but yeah, it's uh, w- w- actually one of the bigger challenges that with the iPhone was just like not having the iPhone, you know, run out of memory. Right? It's like. Yeah, you're in that, almost an embedded yeah. type environment. I mean, a really plush embedded environment, but still. Yeah. And, and the upside is you don't care about the app store, right? So there are no more rules. You can do literally anything. Oh, so it becomes, it's just a pure platform. You can run it on this uh, real right, fancy little ARM device. Exactly. It's a, basically a BSD device with um, obviously iOS on top of it. But if you need to get a little more efficient, you can, um, and we did just drop down to the old BSD uh core right because ios is based on mac os but underneath it all it's actually like a very bastardized form of bsd you right you got the uh, you got the old the xnu and mock stuff and the uh, bsd yeah. user land and it's a it's an interesting little hodgepodge of an operating system yeah it's uh i, I pity i pity whoever wrote ios that's, that must have been like a painful process you just know apple has enough money to uh, hire the really really talented operating devs and make them do something that they probably hate and a few therapists oh yeah that's uh, that's part of the expensive benefits package i'm sure well i'm glad you got a little a little coverage out there you're doing some yeah, really neat stuff and uh now that i know all about the fancy math i'm gonna be following a little more closely Ooh, follow a little more closely. It's not just all Swift all day. No, not Swift all day. I mean, although I'm sure still plenty of Swift. Uh, actually, a lot less Swift than I thought. A lot less Swift. So, than, I, hmm. 
I'm, I might, and I don't want to ring the spell, I, I might have to actually look at Rust. But don't hold me to that. Okay, so I may have to. Let's talk about that really quick. Um, sure. Because I, I feel like not they don't they don't fit quite the same. But you know, Swift has this nice, you know, really you know, static and compiled and can make make quick and lean little things with a, a pretty minimal runtime overhead. Now that doesn't compare to, to to Rust's lower level nature, but it seems like there's there's some things co- there's some things copacetic between the two. And I'm wondering what's the differentiator and what makes you curious about rust of course besides all the 2019 rust hype actually it's i came from it from a different perspective i I definitely see what you're saying with the similarities with swift i was going to do a project in azure spheres but for reasons that have very little to do with me and to do with business guys who actually make decisions about money and stuff and uh, real quick azure sphere is uh, microsoft's linux-based like iot platform right but it's it's like a full platform right so we had an episode on it it's Azure Spheres is you're also going to be paying for Azure services, which right you get are, like updates and firmware and yeah. like yeah the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, it's cool, but it's a very it assumes a connected environment, and for reasons that aren't super relevant to the show, that was something that maybe we couldn't assume. There are ways around that, but it was getting to the point if you're going to pay the Azure Spheres is not a cheap option, right? Let's just put it out there. It just wasn't yeah, the I best fit for that project. It wasn't the best fit, so we're going with just a more pure. Um, Probably like Arduino or something like that. Just oh, like pure embedded just Linux. Just pure embedded sort of more classic environment. Yeah. Might even be like embedded Ubuntu. And, you know, on the, we want to be as cheap as possible on these chips. I'm um, using chips the wrong way, but you know what I mean? Yep. Uh, so we need performance, right? Like you start getting down the list. What are your choices? Well, there is a .NET embedded, but that's like one of the more expensive things you could possibly do. I looked at Kotlin Native. In fact, if people who pay attention to the subreddit will know a couple weeks ago, I asked if anybody did any Kotlin Native because I was hoping to get some uh, performance stats. I did not, but I did a little testing on my own. It, it wasn't bad, but it's definitely not ready for, for prime time, in my opinion. It's neat that they're doing it. I'm definitely following that with yeah. interest. But yeah, you know, it's still kind of still being fleshed out fully. Yeah. And again, for resource restrictions, throwing a JVM on this thing is not going to work. Right. So now we're down to, right, we're down to, there is a Go kind of embedded thing. But again, if I feel the same way I feel about Kotlin Native, we're down to basically C++ and Rust. And I don't know, you listeners got to me. I mean, C++ is kind of the devil I know, but... That devil's taken my soul many times. So you're not one of the uh-huh. um, C++ defenders. I mean, it does seem like I'm willing to believe. I'm not an I'm not an expert. It's been it's been probably a decade since I did any serious C++. But it seems like in a modern world with a modern tool chain, which is usually not what you get in the embedded world, of course, you can write decent, clean C++. Is that is that is that your experience? Yeah, I'm not a C++ hater. You know. There have been every year there's like four or five projects where I have to write like a C or a C library because something's not fast enough in Ruby. Shocker. Sure. Yep. Native extensions. Um, here we go. Native extensions are something that if Ruby didn't have, it would have a problem. <laughs> but again, I, I you know, if I don't need to torture myself, I'm not sure that I want to. And an embedded environment is not the same as let's say Visual C, you know. 2019 in Microsoft Visual Studio or the newest version of Qt uh, running the latest C++. I think it would be more challenging than that. And the, just the hype and, fr- and frankly, the community around Rust who seems to be very eager to get people to like try it might actually be a benefit to this. Yeah, that's a big point. I think I think one of the things they've gotten just really right is is exactly that. They've got a great new user thing. Sure, it's still, you know, there's still a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes. There's a lot of new developments. There's there's still that new the new version of their book in the works, all those things. But they clearly care about new users. And compared to the world of C, like the library ecosystem, the tool chains involved, it's a whole other world, right? You get you get cargo. You get to actually just go with a nice way better than some of the more popular uh, package managers for uh, libraries and for programming languages. You get you get one that's like kind of at the at the top of its form and you get all the nice modern typeful benefits and uh, you know static analysis and the 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 neat approach to borrowing and memory management that come with Rust. Yeah. And there's a selfish reason, right? I tend to work a lot in Ruby and like more, you know, older C# you know stuff like that. 
um, it would be nice to actually try something that's actually the new hotness, right? To be one of the cool kids. Oh, yeah. Well, and then if I don't like it, lots of show content. I think either way, lots of show content. Now, I mean, yeah, you're right. A little bit less if it's just you kind of gushing about how great Rust was. But yeah, I think it'll be it'll be, it'll be very interesting uh, to see see what you think of it. And I'm also curious because I know. I mean, that whole ecosystem is developing. So I'm sure the support for various boards and, and you know, playing in the embedded space, that's developing too. That was, that was one of the other big factors. Um, looking, because I also have to pick out the actual hardware for this. Right. And obviously we're looking at like all the big ones, right? The TI has a bunch of boards. There's, there's actually a company up in Gainesville, Florida, that somehow this company in Florida is manufacturing all these boards. So like the System 76 of weird Amazing. circuit board companies. Um. And all of them basically have documentation on how to get their board and their, I would prefer like straight Ubuntu embedded or straight Debian embedded, but some of them have like their weird, you know, like kernel extensions or whatever. They all have support for Rust. Everyone I've talked to, if you mentioned Rust, it's, it's a positive conversation. So if you do need engineering support from your hardware vendor and from my, I don't, I mean, Wes, I would love to hear your experience. My experience is. If you can get support from your hardware vendor, get it. Yeah, right. Especially, I mean, if you're if you're running a small shop and you uh, don't already employ a bunch of experts in that space, yeah, you're probably you're probably yeah. gonna want a few helping hands here and there. Yeah. Well, that is fascinating. I had no idea you were such a hipster. No, I'm just kidding. But we should make sure like that's that's gonna be something we follow up on because um, I think that will Absolutely. be a very interesting story to watch. All right. Well, Wes, where can they find you? Oh, Mr. Dominic. They can find me all over the place. Uh, on the new TechSnap program, we've got a brand new co-host, Mr. Jim Salter. That's lots of fun. Our first episode is out, so go make sure you check that out. Cool. You can also find me on Linux Unplugged, all kinds of great content. And uh, you'll find some more of that Mr. Chris Fisher over there, too. And you can find all the Jupiter Broadcasting shows, jupiterbroadcasting.com. And, of course, you want more Mr. Michael Dominic, the first place to look is coder.show where you can get this episode at 341 and the whole backlog. But I know there's even more places, Mike. Yeah, at Dumanoko on Twitter or uh, I'm in, in the subreddit about once or twice a week. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me and thank you, dear audience, for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>